Chapter 10 of Outwitting the Hun, My Escape from a German Prison Camp by Pat O'Brien. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Experiences in Belgium I think that one of the worst things I had to contend with in my journey through Belgium was the number of small ditches. They intercepted me at every half-mile or so, sometimes more frequently. The canals and the big rivers I could swim. Of course I got soaked to the skin every time I did it, but I was becoming hardened to that. These little ditches, however, were too narrow to swim and too wide to jump. They had perhaps two feet of water in them and three feet of mud, and it was almost invariably a case of wading through. Some of them, no doubt, I could have jumped if I had been in decent shape, but with a bad ankle and in the weakened condition in which I was, it was almost out of the question. One night I came to a ditch about eight or nine feet wide. I thought I was strong enough to jump it, and it was worth trying, as the discomfort I suffered after wading these ditches was considerable. Taking a long run, I jumped as hard as I could, but I missed it by four or five inches, and landed in about two feet of water and three feet or more of mud. Getting out of that mess was quite a job. The water was too dirty and too scanty to enable me to wash off the mud with which I was covered, and it was too wet to scrape off. I just had to wait until it dried and scrape it off then. In many sections of Belgium through which I had to pass, I encountered large areas of swamp and marshy ground, and rather than waste the time involved in looking for better underfooting, which I might not have found anyway, I used to plod right through the mud. Apart from the discomfort of this method of traveling and the slow time I made, there was an added danger to me in the fact that the squash-squash noise which I made might easily be overheard by Belgians and Germans and give my position away. Nobody would cross a swamp or marsh in that part of the country unless he was trying to get away from somebody, and I realized my danger, but could not get around it. It was a common sight in Belgium to see a small donkey and a common ordinary milk cow hitched together, pulling a wagon. When I first observed the unusual combination, I thought it was a donkey and an ox or bull, but closer inspection revealed to me that cows were being used for the purpose. From what I was able to observe, there must be very few horses left in Belgium except those owned by the Germans. Cows and donkeys are now doing the work formerly done by horses and mules. Although I spent nearly eight weeks wandering through Belgium, and in all that time I don't believe I saw more than half a dozen horses in the possession of the native population. One of the scarcest things in Germany, apparently, is rubber for I noticed that their motor-trucks or lorries, unlike our own, had no rubber tires. Instead, heavy iron bands were employed. I could hear them come rumbling along the stone roads for miles before they reached the spot where I happened to be hiding. When I saw these military roads in Belgium for the first time, with their heavy cobblestones that looked as if they would last for centuries, I realized at once why it was that the Germans had been able to make such a rapid advance into Belgium at the start of the war. I noticed that the Belgians used dogs to a considerable extent to pull their carts, 
and I thought many times that if I could have stolen one of those dogs it would have made a very good companion for me, and might, if the occasion arose, help me out in a fight. But I had no way of feeding it, and the animal would probably have starved to death. I could live on vegetables, which I could always depend upon finding in the fields, but a dog couldn't, and so I gave up the idea. The knack of making fire with two pieces of dry wood I had often read about, but I had never put it to a test, and for various reasons I concluded that it would be unsafe for me to build a fire, even if I had matches. In the first place there was no absolute need for it. I didn't have anything to cook, nor utensils to cook it in, even if I had. While the air was getting to be rather cool at night, I was usually on the go at the time and didn't notice it. In the daytime, when I was resting or sleeping, the sun was usually out. To have borrowed matches from a Belgian peasant would have been feasible, but when I was willing to take the chance of approaching anyone, it was just as easy to ask for food as matches. In the second place, it would have been extremely dangerous to have built a fire, even if I had needed it. You can't build a fire in Belgium, which is the most thickly populated country in Europe, without everyone knowing it, and I was far from anxious to advertise my whereabouts. The villages in the part of Belgium through which I was making my course were so close together that there was hardly ever an hour passed without my hearing some clock strike. Every village has its clock. Many times I could hear the clocks striking in two villages at the same time. But the hour had very little interest to me. My program was to travel as fast as I could from sunset to sunrise and pay no attention to the hours in between and in the daytime I had only two things to worry about, keep concealed and get as much sleep as possible. The cabbage that I got in Belgium consisted of the small heads that the peasants had not cut. All the strength had concentrated in these little heads, and they would be as bitter as gall. I would have to be pretty hungry today before I could ever eat cabbage again, and the same observation applies to carrots, turnips, and sugar beets, especially sugar beets. It is rather a remarkable thing that today even the smell of turnips, raw or cooked, makes me sick, and yet a few short months ago my life depended upon them. Night after night, as I searched for food, I was always in hopes that I might come upon some tomatoes or celery, vegetables which I really liked, but with the exception of once, when I found some celery, I was never so fortunate. I ate so much of the celery the night I came upon it that I was sick for two days thereafter, but I carried several bunches away with me and used to chew on it as I walked along. Of course, I kept my eyes open all the time for fruit trees, but apparently it was too late in the year for fruit, as all that I ever was able to find were two pears which I got out of a tree. That was one of my red-letter days, but I was never able to repeat it. In the brooks and ponds that I passed, I often noticed fish of different kinds. That was either in the early morning, just before I turned in for the day, or on moonlit nights when the water seemed as clear in spots as in the daytime. It occurred to me that it would be a simple matter to rig a hook and line and catch some of the fish but I had no means of cooking them, and it was useless to fish for the sake of it. 
One night in Belgium my course took me through a desolate stretch of country which seemed to be absolutely uncultivated. I must have covered twelve miles during the night without passing a single farm or cultivated field. My stock of turnips which I had plucked the night before was gone, and I planned, of course, to get enough to carry me through the following day. The North Star was shining brightly that night, and there was absolutely nothing to prevent my steering an absolutely direct course for Holland and Liberty, but my path seemed to lie through arid pastures. Far to the east or to the west I could hear faintly the striking of village bells, and I knew that if I changed my course I would undoubtedly strike farms and vegetables, but the North Star seemed to plead with me to follow it, and I would not turn aside. When daylight came the consequence was I was empty-handed, and I had to find a hiding-place for the day. I thought I would approach the first peasant I came to and ask for food, but that day I had misgivings, a hunch, that I would get into trouble if I did, and I decided to go without food altogether for that day. It was a foolish thing to do, I found, because I not only suffered greatly from hunger all that day, but it interfered with my sleep. I would drop off to sleep for half an hour, perhaps, and during that time I would dream that I was free, back home, living a life of comparative ease, and then I would wake up with a start and catch a glimpse of the bushes surrounding me, feel the hard ground beneath me, and the hunger pangs gnawing at my insides, and then I would realize how far from home I really was, and I would lie there and wonder whether I would ever really see my home again. Then I would fall asleep again, and dream this time, perhaps, of the days I spent in Courtrai, of my leap from the train window, of the Bavarian pilot whom I sent to eternity in my last air-fight, of my tracer-bullets getting closer and closer to his head, and then I would wake up again with a start, and thank the Lord that I was only dreaming it all again, instead of living through it. That night I got an early start, because I knew I had to have food, and I decided that rather than look for vegetables I would take a chance and apply to the first Belgian peasant I came to. It was about eight o'clock when I came to a small house. I had picked up a heavy stone, and had bound it in my handkerchief, and I was resolved to use it as a weapon if it became necessary. After all, I had gone through. I was resolved to win my liberty eventually, at whatever cost. As it happened, I found that night the first real friend I had encountered in all my travelling. When I knocked timidly on the door, it was opened by a Belgian peasant about fifty years of age. He asked me in Flemish what I wanted, but I shook my head and, pointing to my ears and mouth, intimated that I was deaf and dumb and then I opened and closed my teeth several times to show him that I wanted food. He showed me inside and sat me at the table. He apparently lived alone, for his ill-furnished room had but one chair, and the plate and knife and fork he put before me seemed to be all he had. He brought me some cold potatoes and several slices of stale bread, and he warmed me some milk on a small oil-stove. I ate ravenously, and all the time I was engaged I knew that he was eyeing me closely. Before I was half through he came over to me, touched me on the shoulder, and stooping over so that his lips almost touched my ear, he said in broken English, 
You are an Englishman. I know it, and you can hear and talk if you wish. Am I not right?" There was a smile on his face and a friendly attitude about him that told me instinctively that he could be trusted, and I replied, "'You have guessed right. Only I am an American, not an Englishman.' He looked at me pityingly and filled my cup again with warm milk. His kindness and apparent willingness to help me almost overcame me, and I felt like warning him of the consequences he would suffer if the Huns discovered he had befriended me. I had heard that twenty Belgians had been shot for helping Belgians to escape into Holland, and I hated to think what might happen to this good Samaritan if the Huns ever knew that he had helped an escaped American prisoner. After my meal was finished, I told him in as simple language as I could command of some of the experiences I had gone through, and I outlined my future plans. You will never be able to get to Holland, he declared, without a passport. The nearer you get to the frontier, the more German soldiers you will encounter, and without a passport you will be a marked man. I asked him to suggest a way by which I could overcome this difficulty. He thought for several moments and studied me closely all the time, perhaps endeavoring to make absolutely sure that I was not a German spy and then, apparently deciding in my favor, told me what he thought it was best for me to do. If you will call on this man, mentioning the name of a Belgian in blank, a city through which I had to pass, he advised you will be able to make arrangements with him to secure a passport, and he will do everything he can to get you out of Belgium. He told me where the man in question could be found, and gave me some useful directions to continue my journey, and then he led me to the door. I thanked him a thousand times, and wanted to pay him for his kindness and help, but he would accept nothing. He did give me his name, and you may be sure I shall never forget it, but to mention it here might, of course, result in serious consequences for him. When the war is over, however, or the Germans are thrown out of Belgium, I shall make it my duty to find that kind Belgian, if to do it I have to go through again all that I have suffered already. End of chapter 10